0614-104-0303. This is the Morning Drive on News Talk WVMT. Welcome back to the Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here, and we are really pleased to have joining us online now, Luke Nichter. He is a, he is an author of a brand new book. He's also a, a professor and a historian, and he's written a book that is just hitting bookstores now. So we're really honored to have him on the show. The year that broke politics, collusion, and chaos in the presidential election of 1968. Good morning. Good morning, Luke. Hey, uh, good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on. Well, we're really excited about this. I, I grew up as a kid. The first election I followed as a kid, I was a political junkie, was the 68 election. And uh, so I think it's one of the more fascinating elections ever. So first, before we get into the, so many issues, and there's new information that you've laid out, but I want to... There's been a lot of books written about Nixon, a lot of books written about Johnson, Humphrey, and the 68 election. I want to ask you, though, how much preparation and research went into doing this book? Because it looks like it was an incredible amount. Well, uh, you know, this is, I, I think you talk to anyone of a certain trade, and they can talk about their trade all day. <laughs> uh, but I, I think, you know, the, the most concise answer I would give is, you know, so it's taken about five years. Um, you know, uh, I put in kind of hundreds of Freedom of Information Act requests um, to get new documents. And I, I think the reason why I wanted to work on a book like this and kind of how I went about it is, you know, I, I, was, up, uh, I was born after this time period. I was born in the late 70s. I'm in my mid-40s today. So I've got a lot of learning to do, but I also approach it with a bit of more of professional distance. Yeah, the, I think it, it's the most divisive election in modern U.S. history. It's the era itself that most closely resembles our own today. And what I realized was I thought, you know, there's no shortage of books about the 60s, yet there's really not very many kind of histories of the entire campaign, certainly by someone who tried to talk to every living person from all the, the political families, all the former staffers, and anyone who really dug deep in archives to find new evidence and try to push, I guess, the outer boundary of what we know ab- about that year to come up with a fresh take. So that was a, a bit of my methodology behind the book. Well, I think that you've uncovered a lot of stuff. And I think there's going to be a lot of attention paid to this. But, and I, I want to, later in the interview, I want to get into one of the biggest things in the book, which is the charge that Nixon created, committed treason in the 68 mm-hmm. election before Watergate. And that's been in some other books, but I, first I want to get into some of the characters in the book and some stuff that you revealed. And let's start with the Reverend, the late great Reverend Billy Graham, um, because in your book it's revealed that he had uh, much more influence in this election than we knew. Well, you know, of course, um, uh, listeners might be surprised to hear you mention him first. Of course, he wasn't on the ballot; he was not a politician. But but being um, a prominent minister, uh, today we would say evangelical leader, uh, he, was, he was friendly with all these political leaders. So he, he, he knew Lyndon Johnson, he knew Hubert Humphrey, he knew Richard Nixon, he knew George Wallace, he knew Ronald Reagan, he knew Dwight Eisenhower. I think I figured out, he, he knew all of the, the major political figures of this time period, uh, about 20 years as of 1968, and it was really himself reaching the top of his own profession. And so what, what, this is really one of the new centerpieces in this book and not something I planned to discover. It was really kind of an accident. You know, as I put in these FOIA requests and call around to archivists uh, at various archives around the country, the, the point is, you know, what's new, what's been recently donated, what might you be ready to release or open next. And sometimes archives will tell you in advance and other times they won't. But in this case, an archivist at Wheaton College just outside of Chicago 
told me they, they planned to open the first portion of Reverend Billy Graham's diary, or as he called it, his VIP notebooks. And so he died at age 99 in 2018, uh, and, and, and even now his personal papers and diaries are slowly being opened. And this diary is over, he lives so long, over 50 volumes covering his relationship with presidents from Harry Truman in 1950 all the way to President Obama in 2014, as well as 50 foreign heads of state. And I, I was told that one researcher ahead of me had accessed it for researcher, research on the British royal family, Otherwise, I was the very first one to look at it for the presidency, uh, and it, certainly the first book to use it. And I think this is more than just a, a religious record or a work of evangelical history. I think really we're going to come to see this as it's fully opened as a, as a presidential history, because there's so much new presidential content between him and those presidents and between those presidents. And specific to this book, we learn that he served as an intermediary between Johnson and Nixon and some of the others, and some of that content is, is, is pretty shocking. And did he, did, do you think that Billy Graham, and I read the whole book, and it's a great, great book, um, do you think that Billy uh, Graham's, because again, he was, he was very close with Lyndon Johnson and very close with Richard Nixon, and there's probably not too many people that were in that position to be so close to those two men. Do you think that his conversations with Johnson and Nixon in any way contributed to Johnson's ultimately not running and to Nixon's ultimately running? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, and when you look at, you know, so historians, you know, we're sitting in an archive and we're kind of looking at old records and we're assembling them like pieces in a puzzle, except for we can't cheat and look at the box and figure out what the finished image is supposed to look like or the puzzle. And so you don't have, you know, the, the record like these diaries answers some questions, but not all. It, it's clear in the diary that Johnson had already confided in Graham as one of the only people that due to his health and the divisions in the country that he did not want to run again in 1968. And, and that Graham told that to Nixon, which is very surprising, uh, that he passed along something so closely held. Uh, and Nixon didn't believe him. <laughs> There's not a chance that someone who worked so hard to acquire political power would, would give it up until the moment that he absolutely has to give it up. Uh, so I think there, there are some clues about that. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say Graham was an influence to, to uh, push Johnson out. We often look at Graham and think about his association with Nixon, but at this time he was far closer with Johnson. He had more in common. They were kind of moderate Southerners. Graham is from North Carolina. Johnson's from Texas, which is not quite the South. And, and to the, for those in the South, they were pro-civil rights. Uh, they were really moderates, the kind of voters that Nixon wanted to go after uh, in the fringe border areas of the South in 1968. So I don't think he pushed him out, but I think he came. Once Johnson had made that decision, I think Graham helped him to be comfortable with it and ultimately to tell both Nixon and Johnson uh, that they needed each other in some way, you know, that in a way kind of what became Nixon's presidency was kind of a continuation of many of the issues faced during Johnson's presidency. And, of course, uh, Lyndon Johnson, as we all know, ultimately makes the decision, I think it was March 31st, 68, yeah. surprised everybody that he was not going to seek re-election. I remember watching it as a kid. But then there was, so Hubert Humphrey, of course, after RFK's assassination, gets the nomination, uh, but then when they get to the convention, and that's what I want to ask you about, how real this was, that Johnson never attends the Democratic convention, which seems unusual for a sitting president of his party, but there was a point where he was going to go, and there might have been a draft Johnson movement 
how serious was that? And was Johnson was he was he torn about it? Was he was there were there yeah. points where he was going to allow the draft Johnson movement to go forward, and he would have actually been the candidate? Yeah, I would say that that's the easiest thing to answer of your question, which is, you know, there was no doubt there was a draft Johnson movement. The question for me is how involved was Johnson, you know, in that? And I think what readers see in the book, you know, anytime I pick up a new a political book or a political history book, you know, something in the back of my mind says kind of, you know, what's this author's take? You know, what's their side? What's their agenda? And I think what you see in this book is I don't take a political side. I, I have kind of a something-for-everyone approach. You know, I present the four major sides, Lyndon Johnson, Hubert Humphrey, Richard Nixon, and George Wallace, in a way that I think the families and former staffers, each of those who helped me and talked to me, you know, would recognize if they, if they read that part of the book. Um, it was, and so it was fascinating to me that one of the major themes in the story, I'm more focused on why the American people voted the way they did and secondly, how LBJ maneuvered throughout the year, which gets to your question, because just because he withdrew from the ballot on March 31st, that was not a withdrawal from politics. If anything, he was more active in, in maneuvering and influencing the, the selection of his successor. So to answer your question very succinctly, um, what you see is an evolution of Johnson. I think initially he wanted Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller, to succeed him. He thought his policies and views were very much in sync. Um, that only a Rockefeller, the brand name, the good looks, the money could defeat a Bobby Kennedy, who was then beginning to surge. But then Johnson begins to shift and react to the events of the year after the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, uh, giving the nomination effectively to Humphrey. You see Johnson, according to the Graham Diary, gradually shift into the Nixon column. And then by September, uh, the Graham Diary documents that, that Graham carried a message from Nixon, a multi-point pledge to Johnson uh, not to criticize Johnson, to give him credit for Vietnam when it's ended, to consult with him in retirement, and to do everything he could to give Johnson a good place in history. And this is stunning for me to read this in the Graham Diary. And I think it's exactly what LBJ wanted to hear at that time when many in his own party were criticizing him. Well, I do think what, what, what sets your book apart is, as you mentioned in the beginning of, of our conversation, there's enough time separation now where really uh, honest uh, information is, is coming out. I mean, uh, you know, with, with Graham's diary, I mean, as he passes and as time passes on, you have an opportunity to really have very direct conversations with each segment uh, or each player at the time. And um, that's that's what I'm most surprised about is I I had no idea that Billy Graham really was this conduit of information back and forth, uh, particularly between LBJ and Nixon. And I, I think that's a big revelation. Yeah, it blew me away. Uh, I, I had no I I cannot admit that that I was so brilliant to anticipate this at the beginning of the process. It was a meeting I had with with former Vice President Walter Mondale at his law firm in late 2017. And, and Mondale in 68 was a co-chair of Humphrey's campaign. He had Humphrey, at the time he was Senator Mondale, he had Humphrey's old Senate seat in the U.S. Senate. And he told me, um, this was the first clue to go down this path for me. He said, um, Humphrey and I became close in the 70s. We discussed 68 many times. And he said Johnson absolutely didn't want Humphrey to win. And he repeated it just like that two times. And I thought, then who did he want to win? Wow. And I said, I said do, you, do you think he wanted Nixon to win? And he kind of looked across his conference, long conference room in a law firm and looked back to me and he said, maybe, 
maybe. And I, and I thought, well, how do I, at that point, I felt like I was not writing a book, but it was almost like a detective story. Exactly. The question is, how do you, how do you follow the evidence? And uh, I, I just have to ask you, because, again, again, there's a lot more evidence that you put in the book about why you think that Johnson actually did ultimately want Nixon to win. But how much, I mean, Johnson was a master politician. Nixon was a master politician. Do you think there's any element of that they were both playing each other to any degree? Or was it all, uh, I mean, obviously Nixon saying, hey, John, you know, President Johnson, we're gonna, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to, uh, you know, he also wanted to make sure that, Nixon, that Johnson did not come out and forcefully support Hubert Humphrey. Well, I, I, I tell you, I, I, to answer your question, I think the best description of, that I've read of the Johnson-Nixon relationship is in Bill Sapphire's book, Before the Fall. And he, he described, and, and I'm nuanced in the book, and I, I'm careful. I, I, don't know that, I don't know that Johnson and Nixon liked each other. I don't know that they were friends, but they were friendly. I don't know that Johnson um, supported Nixon, but I think he came to prefer him, ultimately, as the successor. And Sapphire writes, there's sort of, the, the, he, he paints this picture of sort of two roosters in a cockfight with kind of, you know, daggers attached to their spurs, and they circle each other, they never take an eye off the other, they don't trust each other, but nobody gets bloodied as long as the other doesn't make the first move. And in 68, the story where, where that's, ex- I think, exactly what happened, and, and neither got bloodied, and they came to realize that, I mean, it, it's, in modern U.S. history, it's difficult to find two presidencies. You know, Johnson's was so contingent at its end. The, war, the negotiations to end it were just beginning, but it, there were 500,000 troops there. Domestic policy was uh, so much unrest after the Great Society. And I think Johnson was astute enough to understand that whoever his successor was would write the, f- the final chapters on so many of these policies, and so you better be on the right side of your successor. And he, he came to believe that a moderate Republican, in, in this case, was a better successor than someone from his own party. So he gravitated to that position because, as you point out again in the book, at one time, um, earlier, maybe in 66, uh, where Nixon was criticizing Johnson's Vietnam policy, and Johnson came out and responded to him and said, I'm, I'm not going to respond to a chronic campaigner like Mr. Nixon is, and then kind of went on from there. And, and you point out that later... Johnson says, um, I probably made a mistake there, and with that, with that criticism, I elevated Nixon and made him the, next, made him the Republican nominee. <laughs> yeah, you, you got it right there. And, and, and John Connolly, who was um, Johnson's longtime, he, Nixon hired Connolly as one of his first congressional staffers in 1937, wrote in his own memoirs, uh, and a few people said Lyndon Johnson was a chronic campaigner, too. So it's one of those cases, while you look at the surface, I remember um, Lucy Baines Johnson told me, you know, they're, they're very different. They're different politically. They had different policies during the presidencies, but they respected each other. And they also had a lot of other things that in common that struck deep chords within them. You know, they were aware of their humble upbringings. They were aware of the antipathy that the Eastern establishment, some of the national media had toward them. They were aware they didn't go to prep school. They were aware they didn't go to the best colleges, Nixon to Whittier, Johnson to what's now Texas State. And so in a way they were kind of, uh, you know, they had obvious differences on the surface, but in a more deep kind of emotional level, they had many of the same critics, many of the same rivals and enemies within their parties and elsewhere in the country. And I think those forces were powerful in the late 1960s. 
I want to just ask your opinion here. Um, if LBJ had, I guess, either had not decided to withdraw from the race, if he had had stayed as a candidate, or if he had gone forward with the Draft Johnson movement and became the Democratic nominee, do you think LBJ would have won? And how would Nixon have campaigned against Johnson suddenly when he had been so, you know, kind of cozied up to him? Oh, I think what you set up there in your question, my, if that had come to pass, and of course historians are not supposed to engage in what-if history, but it's fascinating. <laughs> what you're describing would be the ultimate election. Of the two ultimate politicians, uh, rivals of their era, uh, I mean, the Kennedys were awfully good at getting and keeping what they won politically. But, but really, though, in terms of masters of the trade, Nixon and Johnson, having served in the House, you know, basically all levels of government, vice presidency, uh, it really understood politics, and, and, and that would have been a battle of the titans. And I, I guess what I would say is, is that I would leave it at what Graham's diary says in, in response to that question, which is he says something like, I recall, it would have presented for him an awful test of loyalties because he was personally closer to Lyndon Johnson, more similar to him in, in more ways at that time, certainly. Yet he felt that Nixon had been... Uh, unfairly defeated in 1960, had been more decisively defeated, defeated in 62 for the California governorship, was still a relatively young man who would, who would be redeemed one day and have a second chance. And I think that's why Graham was so encouraging of Nixon's campaign in 68, especially after Johnson, was, after Johnson withdrew, because it gave Graham no divided loyalty whatsoever at that point. So you're, that would have been an ultimate campaign. I think ultimately Johnson's preference for Nixon probably was decisive in, in a campaign that otherwise was a pretty, pretty close result. Uh, I, I think if Johnson, wa- Johnson wanted to be reelected, I think he would have found a way to do it. But I think he was limited, especially, uh, I learned through some of the records, by more considerations of his personal health uh, than, than we knew at the time, certainly. Yeah. And so I think that was always holding Johnson back from seeking another four years you know, he grew up as a young man remembering Woodrow Wilson not being healthy to the end of his presidency, FDR dying in office. You know, these are two of his political heroes, and he wanted to go out on top. He didn't, he didn't want to end that way, and so I think that was always a factor in the back of his mind. And uh, before we hit the 7.30 break, we've got a few minutes here. Um, can you talk about the dynamic between Johnson's vice president, Hubert Humphrey, who, of course, gets a nomination, um, but RFK, who... And I don't think you could see this happening today where Humphrey actually didn't even run in the primaries. He didn't run in the primaries, but, and Kennedy and McCarthy are going out, of course, and Kennedy, just before he's assassinated, wins the California primary. I know, again, I'm asking for speculation, but if, if that, if, would Kennedy have got the nomination? Do you think it looked like Humphrey still maybe would have gotten it? Um, and also, how did the RFK assassination affect Hubert Humphrey? Because I know that, you quote, I think, his wife as saying that when RFK was assassinated, Hubert was wounded. Yeah, uh, I, I, I guess um, it is a bit of what if. What if uh, the, the Democratic Convention um, they changed their rules beginning in seventy two, and and so in sixty eight, what the rules were at the time were were that primaries were not binding uh, in terms of delegates. So if Johnson had run. 
you know, he would have he would have already inherited overwhelming strength. You figure almost every state appointee, county chairman would have all owed loyalty to Johnson. So as Hubert Humphrey ran, he didn't need to to enter any primaries because he already had he inherited all of that strength from Johnson. Uh, under the more current rules, um, where where you know you can't you can't dodge primaries in that way. Although you know I guess in 2024 we'll we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, you know I think under the more current rules, you know I think Bobby Kennedy would have accrued uh, delegates at a much more rapid pace. There, you know, so much has been written about how he could have been nominated in 68 and swept the convention away. I, I, I just don't see that, because as soon as Humphrey, as soon as Johnson's out of the race, all those delegates are, you know, owe their loyalty, political loyalty to the administration, and that, that administration at that point becomes Hubert Humphrey. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm just not seeing that, um, but it's just, uh, it, but, but had it played out, had Johnson stayed in or had Kennedy not been assassinated, uh, you know, it's just one of the. These are just additional details. I think that that make this election so fascinating. But Humphrey had to walk a real tightrope, right? Because he needed to break from Johnson over Vietnam to to bring back some people, the the Gene McCarthy supporters. But at the yes. same time, he couldn't alienate the president. I, I say to my students all the time that you know, any for those of you who watch elections closely, any time you have a current vice president or someone very close to the outgoing president running. They have a very difficult uh, line to, to walk because, basically, if you're if you're Hubert Humphrey, uh, and you have to make campaign promises to, to voters or would-be voters, you have to you have to have a, a series of ideas and proposals. And yet, the critic would say, "Well, if those are such good ideas, why didn't you do them the last four years or eight years?" So you're in an awkward position uh, of arguing that that everything we did was great, yet it's still somehow unfinished, uh, and there's more to do. And Nixon in 60 just did this with, with Eisenhower as his president. And so it's very difficult because how do you organize your campaign around meaningful themes and how do you deploy the president effectively? In our more recent time, Al Gore had a terrible time in 2000 with Bill Clinton. He wanted to use him, but then he didn't want to use him. It was a strength in some areas, a weakness in others. Uh, and so Nixon had, had the advantage over Humphrey that he just did this eight years before it's not easy to do, and so I think right from the start of the campaign, uh, Hubert Humphrey, by the way, who was planning to, to run in for four more years as Johnson's running mate in 1968, never imagined he'd be the party's nominee. I think right from the very beginning, the odds were sort of set against him because he just, it just, it's very difficult to organize an effective campaign. Well, and also when you think about it, when you, when you are choosing a vice presidential running mate, you typically would find somebody that checks a lot of boxes that you don't check. So when you get to the point where you're a succession, you're different people. I mean, you know, it's like Reagan and Bush. I mean, uh, the, 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 the president typically will choose a vice president and brings in another side that they don't, they don't attract. So when you get to the point of actually running, you got to kind of deal with that juxtaposition, don't you? Well, and I think if Humphrey in 68 had brought in someone like outgoing Texas Governor John Connolly, that could have been decisive, because that would have been a regional geographic balance. That would have brought in more of the moderate to conservative, really the Johnson Democrats who put Johnson over the top in 64. But again, I say it's the Graham Diary. The Graham Diary reveals, uh, brand new to me, that Graham intervened during the 68 convention. I don't think Humphrey would have taken Connolly anyways, and I think Connolly was skeptical of joining that ticket, 
But, but according to the Graham diary, uh, Graham intervenes, tells Connolly we cannot divide the conservative vote, which is cross-party uh, in 1968, and that if you, you know, decline an offer to go on the Humphrey ticket, a Nixon administration will offer you a cabinet post. So again, it's just, <laughs> besides just his role as a liaison between Johnson and Nixon, there's just so many interesting new details. Wow. All right. Well, this, uh, we're, we're just scratching the surface. We're going to take a quick break. Check in with Fox News. Amanda's got our local headlines. It's the Morning Drive on FM 96.3 and AM 620. News Talk WVMT. Welcome back to the Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here, and we're continuing our discussion with Luke Nichter, who has written what I view as one of the fascinating books on the election of 1968 of all time, the year that broke politics by Luke Nichter. Uh, Luke, I want to go back to what Anthony asked you at the end. Why did, I mean, because I even, why did Humphrey pick Muskie? I mean, he was a certainly a very honorable guy and everything, and but from Maine, um, didn't seem to bring anything to the ticket, it seemed like. Well, why did he pick Muskie? Uh, I would guess that he picked, his choice of Humphrey was rooted in his, deeply in his own experience as vice president. Um, you know, we often give a lot of attention to the, the vice presidential running mate, and I think historically they, can't, they don't really add much. I mean, but they can subtract a great deal. Uh, and I think it's a very tough decision. You know, another way to answer your question is look at the pick of Agnew uh, and compare that to the pick of Lodge for Nixon in, you know, in 60. You, know, you, you want someone who's compatible, who doesn't threaten you politically, who won't take the spotlight away, who, who will be loyal, who won't challenge your positions. And so I agree that, that uh, Humphrey was obviously looking at, at, at one side of the ledger and not the other. I, I don't think that Muskie added a lot, although he did add kind of stability and consistency and loyalty, uh, but he didn't subtract either. And I think a lot of other, uh, other of Humphrey's possible choices potentially subtracted a lot, especially if he'd gone to a, a Connolly or, or another Southerner. Um, so I think that's it. But otherwise, I, I agree with what you're saying. Uh, it, it didn't, add, it, especially because it didn't add anything to the Humphrey campaign in the parts of the country where Humphrey needed to add something. Exactly. You know, I think he, he needed a Connolly, and even if he couldn't get a Connolly, he, he needed someone from a border state or one of the key strategic parts of the country. And, 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 but, but obviously, sort of, uh, I think the, the presence of someone who is calm and stability and loyalty was obviously how. Uh, Humphrey decided, but I should also add one more thing. In a year like 68, I'm not sure Humphrey had many good options because he, he made initial outreach to uh, Bobby Kennedy and then Ted Kennedy, um, and, and there were no clear takers in that year. I think no one wanted to make, their, make or break their political career in that year. A lot of these guys were young. They figured, I'm going to have another shot at this in 72 or 76. Why ruin it all in 68? Yeah, and 68 was tumultuous. You think about, you know, you've got this one trajectory, everybody's focused on Vietnam, and then you, you layer in the assassination of Martin Luther King, and then Bobby Kennedy it was constantly changing. Yep. And, uh, and then you make the case, well, actually, before I do that, I want to ask about George Wallace a little bit. 
Um, George Wallace, of course, governor of Alabama. His wife became governor of Alabama when he couldn't anymore because of term limits. Um, but he was thought of, and is even mentioned by President Biden as, you know, you're with George Wallace, the just known as the racist governor of Alabama. But you make the case that he was more than that and that the media sort of misses that, that he represented something that is still very much in play today. Well, I, certainly you look at his path to power uh, after his loss as governor of 58 and then some of the statements he made in 62 and 63. And t- today, certainly, we would look at those and, and we would call those race dating or racist statements. But the, the difference, though, the shift I think that many at the time missed, missed is that Wallace had national career aspirations. And once those developed, first in 1964, where he ran kind of as a trial balloon in three primaries and was far more successful than he thought, he realized that his message had to be modified to a national audience. He was no longer just campaigning to Alabamians. And so, but certainly by 68, I think we were into Wallace version two or three, where I would describe him more of like a kind of, you know, Huey Long-inspired kind of a Southern populist, still a demagogue, but not, uh, but race, race was still there as an, an implied message and source of appeal, but it wasn't direct anymore in his rhetoric. And a lot of people assigned to the campaign who flying down from Manhattan to cover a campaign were surprised uh, to, to leave, you know, the rally and, and not hear the statements, the kinds of statements that Wallace was famous for earlier in the decade. And so I, I think the big takeaway from the Wallace campaign is, I would say it was really the first time in modern U.S. history that you have a very kind of anti-elite, anti-establishment, a kind of, he didn't use the words drain the swamp, but he might as, he might as well, um, that kind of a, a campaign becomes an establishment campaign. Even the choice of Agnew on Nixon was a, for Nixon was a way of kind of taking the anti-establishment and bringing it into an otherwise establishment campaign. And I would argue every kind of populist uh, campaigner, presidential candidate since Wallace on both sides of the aisle, but especially more recently Republicans, have taken a piece of that Wallace, that rhetoric and anti-elite, I'm an outsider to Washington, they all say, even though their whole careers have been in Washington. And so I think that you can draw a line uh, from that, go all the way back to Wallace. I want to save plenty of time for Anna Chanel, but one more question on Wallace. What was his impact ultimately on the election outcome? There were points in time that he, in polls, that he was only a few percentage points behind Humphrey. He was low 20s and Humphrey was high 20s. And you make the case that Humphrey brought some of that support back, not by Vietnam or anything, but by bringing back some of the union workers, um, by putting out stuff saying George Wallace is anti-union, whatever it was. And so he, when Humphrey's surge started, it was on those type of longtime Democratic issues rather than the Vietnam War. Is that right? Yeah, this, this is another point that I did not plan to argue in the book. Um, it, it, most of what's been written about this year says the major issue was Vietnam, that's how people voted uh, that fall. And it was longtime um, uh, Democratic consultant Vic Fingerhut, who, who, working on his first campaign for Humphrey in 68, who said, it's all nonsense. I was in charge of watching these movements, these late switchers, he called it, to Humphrey. And Wallace was polling 23% uh, up until early October. And he said, uh, people, the campaign was not about, uh, about Vietnam. That, that people, we see this, the, the, the polls are kind of soft for a while, and then some of those emotional voters start to get serious, you know, in that period right before Election Day. 
and he said uh, the, the movement back to Humphrey and why it became so close, these late switchers were not because of Humphrey's position on Vietnam. It was, it was a Democratic bread and butter, kind of FDR, FDR New Deal, Truman Fair Deal, Democratic prosperity, Social Security, education, jobs, the economy. When Humphrey began to switch back to that traditional Democratic message, uh, and, and really raided the storehouses of union votes. Uh, the AFL-CIO got out and did what the Humphrey campaign couldn't do, is to bring a lot of those votes back into the, the traditional Democratic column, uh, that that's really how people voted in November. And, of course, Nixon sort of conceded those, some of those Southern votes, I believe is what you're saying. They conceded some of those Southern votes to Wallace because he didn't want to go after the racist-type votes. But in the end... Would you say that uh, if Wallace hadn't been in the race, that Nixon would have swept the South? Oh, there's another great what if. Um, uh, if, <laughs> if it had been a two-man race, Nixon and Humphrey, uh, obviously both would have had to have campaigned pretty hard in the South to capture those states. I, I, it's hard to say what Nixon's strategy would have been. My guess is you've got to go back to those red and blue maps of Eisenhower-Nixon in 52 and 56 where Eisenhower Nixon had begun to peel off some of those traditional Democratic states. They won Virginia twice, 52-56. Louisiana, they won in 56. And so my guess is Nixon would have liked to have at least you know, kept in his column some of those Eisenhower Nixon states, and maybe a few on the fringe. You know, He might have also got Texas looked like without Wallace it might have gone to Nixon, depending on what LBJ might have done about that. Um, so I think that probably would have been Nixon's strategy. But again, another fascinating what-if question, if it had been a two-man race. Yeah, it, it's yeah. so fascinating. Now let's get to the, let's get to the Anna Chenault affair, so to speak. Um, Anna Chenault, um, first of all, just to set this up, there are people now who have written books, one of them, Playing with Fire by Lawrence O'Donnell, where he makes the claim that, never mind Watergate, Nixon committed a far bigger crime than Watergate because he committed treason. This, according to Lawrence O'Donnell and another author, John Farrell, and they're basing it on notes that they've uncovered by Nixon's chief of staff, Haldeman, and they think that it shows that Nixon interfered in the peace process at the end of the election, where Johnson was at times secretly negotiating with the Vietnamese or his administration, and they did the bombing halt just days before the election. And the, the, the charge is that Nixon, according to these notes, that Nixon interfered. And Lawrence O'Donnell even says in his book, Nixon decided that more American boys had to die in Vietnam so that he could become president. What have you found out about that? Well, I, I guess the way that I address this in the book, um, and I ultimately do, is by addressing the broader campaign story that, that the, the other authors don't, don't address. And for me, um, the, the charges against Nixon begin to melt away, mainly because I talk to all the Johnson people. I talk to all the Humphrey people. I talk to the Nixon side and everyone living who was part of the peace talks, who were, who, the ones who were trying to end the war in 68. And some of those people were the most informative because they told me that, that our, our charge in 68 was not even to end the war. Our charge was just simply to, to set up negotiations that we could bring our allies, South Vietnam, in. You know, this gets technical and detailed, but the point is, is, is you know, what we're talking about is if, if Nixon used Washington socialite Anna Chenault to interfere in these negotiations, wouldn't they have had to have known what was in the negotiations to interfere with? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I interviewed Chanel, and the only one of these authors who talked to Chanel uh, in, in, did in 2017 at her Watergate penthouse, she didn't know anything about what's been attributed to her. Uh, her, her own uh, memoirs barely refers to this. And in fact, the portion that does, you know, I found records in her, her, her papers where she threatened to sue her, her ghostwriter for making things up. The original dictations that, that resulted in the finished book about this, uh, where she said, I, I remember clearly, she said something like, I'm going to dictate this now, well, it's all fresh in my, my memory, are not even, that those charges aren't even in her dictations. So I think where I would, where I would you know, put a point on this is to say, this story has been on the public record since January 1969 in the St. Louis Globe-Dispatch newspaper. And as I said to, to Jack Farrell shortly after his book came out, you know, when Nixon, maybe Trump will surpass him, but at least Nixon was probably the most investigated politician, in, maybe in U.S. history, certainly in modern U.S. history. Mm-hmm. And, and during Watergate, when there were, I think, at one time, five simultaneous investigations, and coming through basically every detail of Nixon's political career and presidency, are you saying to me that if he had reached the presidency itself by dishonorable means, they wouldn't have investigated that when everybody was alive and they could have been called as witnesses? It would right. have been a great show in front of the cameras, just as Watergate was. And he said, well, that's a good point. Isn't it so tr- to me, it just doesn't add up. Isn't it true, and I'm taking this again from your book, but that the South Vietnamese were the, the, in, Hawaii, in Hanoi and in the Johnson administration negotiators, some of whom were really intent on helping Humphrey rather than solving the war, it seemed like, that they they kept keeping the South Vietnamese Saigon and Thieu out of the negotiations anyway, and so that that whatever I mean that they were going to be suspect of these negotiations to begin with, wouldn't that be accurate? Yeah, I say in the book that you know if the uh, administration was serious about peace in 1968, uh, look at the end of the day, this had to be a, a settlement between Hanoi and Saigon. We kept Saigon out of it. They had no seat at the table until after the 68 election. If we were serious about peace, they should have been brought in. If we were serious, we could have stepped out and just let them talk and figure this thing out and, pulled our own, and, and made a plan to pull our own troops out. And that, that never happened. Our negotiators, you know, like Averill Harriman, who was the leader of our delegation, he was basically a, you know, a Soviet whisperer. You know, he, he, was, he was the master of negotiations going back to Yalta with Stalin in 54 with the Geneva Accords. He negotiated the Laos Accords in 62. He, he, he's far more adept at negotiating with communists, you know, than with South Vietnam, which was very suspicious of him. So I think Johnson went along with the idea of peace talks, not thinking they would produce much, because I think there's one thing that Johnson wanted very desperately, and I take this seriously in the book, I think Johnson realized that Vietnam was the weak part of his legacy, and he desperately wanted to be seen as a peacemaker in history, just as Nixon did, ultimately. And I think Johnson ultimately went along with the peace talks because people convinced him, this is your last chance. Even if you think there's a small chance this is going to work out, for you to be seen as a peacemaker. And Johnson went along with it, and what you see is that the closer it got to the election, the more the talks were really not about peace in Vietnam, because there was no such chance in 1968, as the delegation members have told me. Uh, but it became a tool for electing Hubert Humphrey so these people in these jobs could get promotions and continue on in their work in the next administration. And now let's talk about the Haldeman notes that they uncovered, because this is what John Farrell, author of some books on Nixon, as well as Lawrence O'Donnell, um, have relied on, they found notes where Haldeman said something in the notes like, uh, RN 
keep Anna Chenault on the Vietnam issue. What have what do you take out of all the research you've done, which seems much like much more vast research than what the others have done? Well, I, I, I say at the outset, uh, even though it's been 55 years, there's still records to be released. Uh, and so I have to keep an open mind. Um, and I try to keep facts separate from commentary. Um, but I believe I'm the first one to talk to everyone and to review every record. And, and my bottom line um, is that if you look at the four pages of the Haldeman Notes, that's all it is, from a campaign stop on a train through Ohio in October 22 and 23 in 1968, uh, if you look at the notes, which, which are in an appendix of the book, I kind of break down, because some readers really want to get into the detail here. I left it out of the chapter where I talk about this. Um, the notes, are high, I would say, are highly cherry-picked. Uh, those who make the claim that Nixon interfered in the peace talks, and they use these notes as their star evidence. You take a sentence over here, you take a sentence over there, you take a sentence over here, you mash it together, and what you get is that Nixon must have interfered. And that's not the way I read these notes at all. And I'll be curious to know what, what, read, what the readers of the book, what conclusions they come to. I view it much more as um, Nixon being concerned that people around Johnson were, 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 um, were separating themselves from Johnson's own conditions for peace. So I, ulti- I ultimately argue 180 degrees different, that, that, Johnson, uh, that Nixon wasn't seeking to commit treason against Johnson's policy. He was rallying people around Johnson's policy and making sure Johnson's people were doing the same thing. So I take a very different take on this. And, I mean, that's certainly the way I, I looked at it reading the book um, was, and, and Nixon keeps pointing to make sure that the three Johnson uh, conditions are met. Yes. And, but then what about the phone call, just to cover this one too, where President Johnson calls Senator, the late great Senator Everett Dirksen from Illinois and says something like, this is treason. It's the very first line on the very first page of the book, this is treason. And, and so what I try to show in the book is what does that really mean? Um, you know, there are 10,000 LBJ tapes. There are at least that many Nixon. And a lot of times in those tapes, you hear bluster, you hear venting, uh, uh, you hear uh, someone who's uh, reacting to the stresses of the day. Uh, you hear someone who often doesn't say what they really think, but are soliciting what others think. And Johnson did this just like Nixon. You have an extreme reaction and it puts the other side in a position of saying what they really think. And that's often the goal of Dixon and Johnson on the secret White House tapes. So I, I'm not really sure what he means by that, other than I, I think Johnson, by the end of his presidency, thought the person who was really guilty of treason was South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Thieu, that Johnson had sacrificed his, his presidency for this small nation, our ally, his own personal health, and even the chance at another presidential term and he felt that Tew owed his loyalty to the United States by the end of 1968 and could not believe that Tew would leave him and not participate in these peace talks at that, at that late hour. Uh, so I, I can't tell you exactly what Johnson says means by that any more than other Johnson tapes or, or utterances on the Nixon tapes. There's a lot of venting and blustering that goes on in these right. recordings. And, and could you make the case that, I mean, in a different way, that Humphrey... I don't want to say that he interfered with the peace process, but that his Salt Lake City speech undercut Johnson's negotiating position and his administration? Well, I, I think there's, I, I think the issue that Humphrey has a difficulty campaigning, which you talked about before. 
that when you hear Humphrey making a campaign speech, it doesn't matter which one, let's take Salt Lake City, September 30th, 1968, is he making it as the current vice president or is he making it as a political candidate? You say, well, I guess both. But that's a, you see, that's his difficulty. As vice president, his duty is to maintain the, the, the administration's position on a policy, uh, and he makes that speech and every speech thereafter without the vice presidential seal because he wants to send a signal. And we don't see that a lot of times because we see a text of a speech and we don't know the optics of, of that speech and that it lacks a president, vice presidential seal. But it's clear to answer your question. Uh, I don't know what Humphrey thought about that, but the people around Humphrey were clearing speech content with negotiators in Paris. They were making, they, you know, they knew when to go beyond Johnson. They knew when not to go too far to threaten the peace talks. And, and I think that if, if another politician were in this situation, uh, we would say um, that's, that might not be appropriate. That might be appropriate as vice president to, to know what you're saying and what the peace talk, what the, those who are running the peace talks are saying privately to delegates from Hanoi. But as a political candidate, um, I, I'm not sure that's appropriate. Uh, last question. Boy, we could have done two hours, just like with Dwight Chapin on his great book. <laughs> um, but the last one, and we're just about out of time, is uh, how, the 68 election, you do make the case at the end of the book that was a repudiation of Johnson and, and the, who had come in with a massive win over Goldwater. But then at the end, if you put Nixon and Wallace's votes together, it was like 58, 57% drubbing. What was, how did that affect future elections? Just well, fairly this is quickly. a history that hasn't been written yet, believe it or not. Uh, there's really no thorough book, I would say, on LBJ's presidency or Nixon's or even much of the 70s. But to succinctly answer your question, it's a fascinating for me to look at it. For people who watch elections, the millions who put Johnson over the top in 64 basically weren't sure what to do in 68. Some of them went Nixon, some of them went back to their old home, the Democratic Party, some went to Wallace. Those same millions put Nixon over the top in 72, and many of them became what we would call today Reagan Democrats and put Reagan over the top in 80 and especially in 84. And so what it shows is that maybe what we call is a silent majority, the kind of Nixon moderates plus the Johnson moderates, which Nixon hoped to make into a permanent alliance and a new political party, which he proposed with John Connolly as its head in 1976. Never happened because of Watergate. That's a fascinating thing. Who are those voters? Their party ID, as we would say, and how, how do they shift around? And in in my own past, I think that's that. I never I never witnessed a single political conversation growing up. We were all pro union, blue collar, pictures of Kennedy or FDR on the walls, and I think that's the those are that's the kind of household that that I grew up in, along with millions of other people. Who, who were around the center and, and didn't vote straight party. They voted for the, the person, for the idea. And I think that's the sh we're seeing in this book a political shift that's just beginning to happen. Fair to say, Luke, that looking to the future, that uh, be careful about making predictions because events can overtake um, the election. Well, it's 55 years since 1968, and here we are, I think, really finally having a better understanding of how, how, it, how it happened. And I hope it doesn't take 55 years to understand our own political era today, but it just might. Uh, so, so be cautious of your news feeds uh, and, and be aware of the fact there's so much that we don't know yet. Yeah, Luke Nectar, thank you for being on the Morning Drive today and uh, for this great, great book called The Year That Broke Politics. I encourage everybody to go out and get this book. Yeah, it's, it's just spectacular. spectacular.